It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Someone is arrested and they cannot get out because they can't afford to pay bond, that doesn't speak to their guilt or their innocence. That doesn't speak to their dangerousness towards the community. The only thing it does is separate the haves from the have-nots. And that means that if you have, then you can get out. And if you have not, then you cannot. And it also means that you may be forced into entering a plea agreement to a crime that you did not commit because you can't afford to lose your job. You can't afford to lose your house. You can't afford to lose your kids. So you'll enter a plea if that's what it takes for you to get out. And why we ever thought that that was a just system is a question for me. If you are in fact a danger to the community, then we will seek release conditions that either cease you from being a danger or we will ask that you remain in custody if there are no release conditions that can address whether or not you're a flight risk or a danger to the community. But money cannot be a deciding factor in that. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Miked Up, an unapologetic, low-country-based podcast from the Charleston Activist Network. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and the voice you just heard, it belongs to Monique Worrell. She's a candidate running for state attorney in Florida. I thought that her thoughts on the current state of our cash bail system were extraordinarily important to hear, especially given the fact that I'm bringing you an episode that features someone who specializes in this type of advocacy here in Charleston, South Carolina. I sat down with Letitia Amara a few days ago, and I love this interview. It's well overdue. I've respected Letitia's work from afar for quite some time. Uh, she was an original Black Lives Matter activist here, uh, and also she's been very active since, uh, you know, early like 2017, 2018. Um, she also has a compelling story and her experience in movement spaces here, especially alongside the now gone Mahuadine Dabaha. Um, I think it's important for you to hear about those experiences and her time with Moya, as he's also known. Um, so please listen in. I think Letitia has some um, very, very wise words and a great perspective that we don't hear enough from. Um, I love lifting up black women in these revolutionary, uh, liberating spaces. And yeah, here's my interview with Letitia Amara, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, make sure you check out the show notes for more information on today's show and also to sign up for our book club. OK, take care, everyone. And all my Gullah Geechee people. Y'all stay black. Well, uh, this uh, guest here on this week's Mic'd Up is someone I've been um, uh, looking forward to, to speaking with for so long, especially following the recent uprisings that took place here in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I've just come to know her work through uh, other folks, other community activists or leaders who are in community with this guest. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Go ahead and introduce yourself, guest. Letitia Imara. Hey, Leticia, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for joining me for Mic'd Up. Um, I think it's really important for um, for me as a host of this show, someone who's trying to grow the content, uh, someone who wants to center more Black voices here in Charleston who are doing 
such amazing, amazing, liberative work, work that's radical and revolutionary. And honestly, you're you're one of the names that tops my list of people to speak with. And um, I know you through your work with the Black Liberation Fund. Could you tell folks um, who are listening, what is the Black Liberation Fund? Black Liberation Fund is currently a bail fund. We hope to expand into um, reentry and post-incarceration work, um, but it's a abolitionist organization which focuses really directly, and we try to focus most of all on Black people's lives. You know, as far as the criminal justice system pre and post incarceration is is kind of concerned here in Charleston. Um, as far as I'm aware of, um, there hasn't been an entity like this here. And I just want to make sure that when we talk about voting and we talking about people, we are also talking about Black people and those folks who are um, just as far from being <clears throat> able to, but can't have th- those particular rights. Yeah, you actually answered a question I was going to follow up with, which is, do you know of any, um, because I know there are a host of of um, either like reform efforts being launched. Uh, you know, there are different types of organizations, uh, organizations set up to help combat recidivism, you know, things like that. But I, I really don't know of any um, abolitionist uh, organizations quite like yours here in Charleston. So you, you do think you're the only one here? Um, so when we started, cause black liberation fund started June 1st. Um, but when we started, there was not a bail fund. Um, and then we went in search of people who were doing similar types of work, like you said, um, for, you know, reentry and stuff like that. And none of those, they do a focus on incarceration, but none of those are directly abolitionists and none of them are just, are going to say it on paper like we are for black people (laughs) so Mm -hmm. in that regard um for us to say that we're a black organization and then that one of our main focus is abolition is from what i understand wholly unique for this area yeah i I think um you know if anyone listens to the show or or anyone familiar with with uh the type of messaging that i try to promote in advance it's all about um, specifically and unapologetically meeting the needs of Black folk here, Black and Gullah Geechee folk here in Charleston. And it's it's um it's just remarkable whenever I find like-minded individuals, not to say that that doesn't exist here. I think it does, Leticia, like I think it exists in tradition, but to see mm. this in, um, in the space of, um, especially following the May 31st uprisings here in Charleston, to see um, something um, this powerful, put in put into I guess put into action it's timely and it's um it's just something that Charleston has to see we need to model um I think model organizations like this we need to see more organizations that are just there for black folk um and to help folks stay you know stay free from or or get free from the incarceration you know not even incarceration but like you know jail but potentially incarceration as well Mm -hmm. um but before I go all the way there, can you just take me back to May thirty first? You said that the BL, you said that BLF came about in June. Can mm-hmm. you tell? Can you tell me like how that? How the? What's the origin story of BLF? Okay. Well, authentically, I am a former member of Black Lives Matter Charleston um, under the leadership of Muhyiddin and Dabaha, who transitioned or was murdered, assassinated on February 6, twenty eighteen. 
Um, so Black Lives Matter in and of itself for me kind of stopped on that day. However, I, I am and was caretaker for that page and as well as the group. Um, so this time around during the pandemic, when there was a definite call on Black Lives, um, I started uplifting people's um, protests and things like that on the page. Um, <laughs> and then this just kind of expanding to me actually attending one of those protests and seeing um, the environment of or the the anger or the vitriol that the police were actually engaging with people with. And I just came up with the conclusion, um, myself and Sydney Kessler went to that protest together, that I, I asked the question, I was like, who's going to, who can provide, how do we raise bail money? <laughs> Cause I just felt like there were going to be arrests. Um, and unfortunately, um, when we came back from Columbia, I know that, you know, I was home and I started watching the rest of the uprising here in Charleston, um, or the, what, what the, the events that transpired that day on my television from the news. Cause I mean, by the time we got home, we were exhausted. And I was like, well, there's definitely going to be arrests. Um, so we started organizing around that, asking folks to donate bail money and things like that. We went to the jail and started bailing people out. And it just kind of grew into this. Some people yeah. were snatched where they were for not following directions that night. Other people were eventually arrested on much more serious charges. Um, but I came, we came up with the name Black Liberation Fund, as in, for me, I always wanted it to be a sustainable entity here in Charleston to continue to hold this work. Because it's um, ridiculous to me that every time something happens, we're at the hard scramble at the ninth hour trying to organize people to gather around a person, an arrest, or, or whatever the case may be. And then also, as someone who has... um. Two, two loved ones incarcerated for such an amount of time, including one um, activist, um, Shango Asusi. Um, and I feel like if we had the resources then, what we have now, you know, he could have been spared this two and a half, three years almost incarcerated. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I landed on just the creation of um, Black Liberation Fund. Sydney Kessler um, and I were working closely together in those first initial months with the creation of this. And um, I, I just intend for it to stay here and, and be a, a, a Charleston staple, so to speak. And then, you know, hopefully carry the rest of the state. Maybe. I don't know. Can't tell the future. <laughs> right. Can you can you help folks who are not familiar with um, your abolitionist values? Can mm -hmm. you help folks make the distinction between, well, I can just go to a bail bonds person to get my loved one out versus perhaps mm -hmm. relying on something like BLF? Um, so the difference in cash bail and a bondsman, okay, cash bail or to pay bail, when you pay bail for someone, you are paying money to the government saying that I guarantee that this person is going to come back and make their court date. In Charleston, it looks a lot like you getting, let's say a $10,000 bail and you engaging with a bondsman, paying them a down payment, and then making payments up until you get to your court date. Um, what I've found or what I've noticed is that once you are financially um, caught, not saying caught up, but invested with a bonds person, um, 
arrests are more likely and it provides a family hardship. So what we ended up doing is that when we pay people's bails, it's at no financial obligation to them to pay us back. And in the criminal, uh, the Charleston Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, they did a study where it actually, they proved themselves <laughs> that people who are go back out with PR bonds are more likely to meet their court, um, their court, you know, agreements. And they're more likely to not get rearrested with what's called safety concerns. Um, and this is people who go out and just do things, you know, about that six month period after time, because you're insured a quick and speedy trial is what it's supposed to be. But people with financial bonds, so more likely they've either paid it up full or they've engaged a bondsman are more likely to reoffend within that, in that first six months. So that's just like, you know, when you have a bondsman, you are responsible for payments. They could come get you for non-payment. Um, you are also responsible for showing up and, and making sure that that fine is paid in its entirety. There's an agreement that goes with that. Black Liberation Fund, there is an agreement of community service, but it works more like a PR bond where you know folks are resourced to the things that they need, and that's what apparently has been lacking. Can you explain what a PR bond is real quick? Uh, personal recognizance bond. Okay. So that basically when you go into the bond court and you sit in front of a judge and the judge says, okay, well, you pose no threat to yourself, family, or community, we'll release you to whether it's your own family, um, if you're married, uh, a mom, a dad, however that looks for you at home. Um, and a financial bond is where the judge says, well, you can be a risk to the community and we're going to put this amount of money on you. And to be absolutely clear, um, the United States is only one of two countries that actually participates in cash bail. And it's been proven throughout the country that cash bails uh, disproportionately affect um, poorer um, and minority communities. So lo low-income people are more often get bigger, larger, or even a bail at all. And we can even have seen that through the charges that were eventually brought down from that protest and who got what amounts as opposed to who got other amounts. Wow. So you saw you saw outcomes kind of break down along racial lines. A yes. Bit. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. How do I think? <laughs> well, I, I mean, the vestiges of slavery and also Jim Crow and mm -hmm. what happened, you know, coming coming out of Reconstruction um, especially here in the South, um, you know, the convict leasing and the ways to keep people entangled in mm -hmm. the criminal justice system. I, and I, I'm reluctantly calling it the criminal justice system, but, um, you know, just keeping folks uh, stuck in this perpetual like wheel of constantly making contact with law enforcement because of small infractions, mm -hmm. um, you know, charges are being, you know, escalated or, you know, embellished, uh, you know, or trumped up rather. I think that's the word I was looking for, but yeah, I, I, I can imagine what people go through, especially um, some of the, the younger folks who were engaging in the, in the rebellion um, here in Charleston. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to back it up again because you kind of just dropped it. You have a, a very, I think just like how you just rose to the occasion and filled a void here to help folks, um, you know, gain their freedom, um, albeit maybe, you know, temporary, but, um, you know, I think 
I think you just kind of like dropped on on folks' lap that you know you were in community with Mahudin and and he's he's become a mythical figure here. But mm-hmm. if you could if you could kind of like maybe give us give the listeners a little bit more background as to who he was and what you know I guess what your role or or your experience was in working with him before he he like as you said at before his life was taken in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Muhyiddin, um, he, there are people that you meet for a lifetime and then there are people you meet like a shooting star. They just last for a little while. Um, so he was one of those people in my life. Um, so in 2015, at the Days of Grace, I walked up knowing I wanted to be, you know, synergy, like involved in this. I wanted to be involved in a movement that I felt that was in my heart that was moving right then. And I saw him walking down the street. Um, in front of the Emanuel AME and said he um, was chanting, Clemente Pinckney was assassinated. Very controversial, but he had no fear. And I was like, okay, all right. So we got to the park and they were holding the Black Lives Matter sign up. I was like, okay, I'll take it in. I'll, I'll hold it. And from then on, everything that was involved in Black Lives Matter, I tried to intimately, you know, be involved in with him. Um, and we were, we were in community um, at least for that first year, which was a super crazy year because it was also about to come up an election year. And um, we had the court case of Michael Slager from the Walter Scott case going on, as well as the um, the the, the right. remnants of what had just happened at Emmanuel AME. So like, to back it up for folks who don't, because that mm-hmm. timeline gets blurry even for me. Yes, mm-hmm. the um, the Slager, uh, mm-hmm. the, the murder of, of Walter Scott happened before mm-hmm. Emmanuel nine. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's what people kind of maybe think that it happened after. I, yeah. So go ahead. Continue on. Yeah. yeah so Slager did happen before the Emmanuel nine. Um, the community had, however, like not healed in an obvious way from either one of them, you know? Um, so we organized around that, 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 that energy, how can we make our communities better? How do we, um, tell the, the criminal justice system that, you know, this man should be incarcerated. This was a a hate crime. He actually, um, you know, portrayed this event that did not happen. That was recorded on tape. Um, you know, this has happened here. And then after that, the Emmanuel nine and the, the, the knowledge that, even he could not have worked <laughs> and gotten to there to that point, um, you know, by himself. Um, so we we took it up upon ourselves to, to kind of get up against white supremacy in that moment. And we did a lot of protesting. Um, I, you know, for the be- better lack of term, eventually uh, started becoming um, involved with the social media pages. Um, Black Lives Matter itself, the group went through many different iterations and looked different like every few months, um, just based upon energy. But what I always noticed that was special about Mahidin is that everybody who actually ever intimately met him remembered him because he always met people where they were and everybody was able to provide some type of help within their own expertise. And we all touch, like, if you ever see the circles, like, overlap, he was that that, that overlapping for those circles, um, which was another one of his um, projects, um, Building from the Block Up, was his his vision of how all of that would work. And I'm getting teary, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I want you to pause, like (laughs) because that's the thing. I'm I'm getting emotional. Listen, like you see my literally like my arms got Mm -hmm. goosebumps on them. Um, Mm -hmm. because I think too, I remember this, and I don't like I remember really. Mahoudin caught me off guard. I ain't gonna lie, like you said, um, controversial. I think that was the first the first impression that mm-hmm. he made on me. And I'm like, who is this dude? Right? Like, <laughs> is, is he organized? Like, I, I, I was, I was critical. I was critical. Mm-hmm. Like it, it ain't, uh-huh. it ain't nothing like, you know, we all do that. But like, but, but what, what I started to see because he was in community with people that you would, it wasn't just the, re, the rebel rousers. I'm using air quotes. It wasn't just the radicals. He was in community with a lot of people who really wanted to champion what he mm-hmm. was trying to build here. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, you talk about nonprofit, like people and with collars and, and dresses to people on the streets. And I think he had uh, an effect on folks. And um, yeah, when I tell you like, like a, a light that was snuffed out, like just crazy and I remember the news and I don't want to stay too much on the trauma but I, I want to say that um the way you're feeling right now I think it's um it's important to understand the impact of the work that that he the seed that he planted that you all planted together mm-hmm. um but um just know that it wasn't in vain and I think that the work you're currently doing now is a testament to what he really was working toward and he'd be proud. And I know he is proud, you know, wherever he is, you know, seeing that. So I just wanted to hold space for you right there in that moment and tell you, um, thank you for sharing that. Cause I know you lost a, you lost a loved one. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and that's, that's how it feels. Um, cause the month before, um, Shango Asusi had also went to prison. He was denied bail twice and he went to jail. Um, so Muhyiddin's um, death took, t- you know, took me also aback and just surprised because I never want young activists to ever get this situation twisted. Um, things can go from zero to a hundred really quick. Um, there are the, the the vestiges of the 60s and 70s with COINTELPRO and keeping tabs on people and making lists and things like that, that is a very real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to say that um, when people get official stories and even have hearings on things and, you know, they arrest another Black man for a crime, you keep in mind that you're only getting the official story because you weren't there, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And somebody had to have been... But it's emotional for me because um, I wanted to honor him in a better way, you know what I'm saying? By mm-hmm. by replicating that work in, in a way that would actually sustain itself, which is what I, I feel like we all, like if I ever had a chance to do it all over again, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, yeah, it, it had to happen, <laughs> I guess. But yeah, in this yeah. moment, I just felt like this work would be the most appropriate because it'll start with, you know, something that he had a heart for, which was abolition work, which was connecting our people, Black people, to the resources they need and caring for them um, mm-hmm. through these times of, of pain, which mm-hmm. is what I felt like this whole country was in, you know, after a pandemic and now seeing Black person after Black person shot and killed in this country. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. 
I, I wanted to also like highlight you, you just hit on it um, just a moment ago. You talked about the timeline in terms of the loss you sustained, like, a, a, you know, uh, losing a loved one to incarceration and then, you know, a fellow organizer to, um, to, to gun violence. But, but um, that timeline, what it really made me think about was how a lot of these things, and I'm not, I'm not getting into conspiracy theory at all, but a lot of these things are not coincidences. Um, mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of the the pressures, and I won't say too much, um, mm-hmm. but 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 I I really think it's important for younger people who are now engaged in in rebellion to understand that these the stakes are high. This is not this ain't the women's march. This ain't mm-hmm. this and no no shade, but this mm-hmm. ain't but this ain't pussy hats and you know we'd all be at we'd all be at brunch if Hillary was elected. This ain't that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like they're 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 like I called out a photojournalist um, here local for, with our local paper, um, the Post and Courier, like because he took a picture of one of the the black men engaged in rebellion, and that picture was used as a front page story that following Sunday. And I'm like, man, you put this person's life at risk. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you, and then you look, look at other publications like the New York times that use like silhouette or ways to just obscure identities, you know, mm-hmm. and it just made me think about, man, what's not here in terms of the care for these, for these protesters, like what's not here in the way of political education, um, abolition education, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what one of the reasons why I started a book club. But but yeah, I, I wanted you to just kind of touch on that part about how serious this is. When you say COINTELPRO, that's huge. So, mm-hmm. how, how, yeah, tell elaborate more on how serious it is for folks to engage in protests at this moment. Um, okay. Um, okay. So, from that, um, Black Collective, they did an excellent um, video on Shango Asusi's arrest back in um, 27, 2018. Um, But they made an excellent point. We all were aware of there was this mysterious list called the Black Identity Extremist List um, that was linked um, to, you know, linking basically who they thought were the heads of things in in places. And... um, a government list, just like the Colonto Pro um, thing was. And at that same time, um, people love to forget this all over the country. Um, active black men from like Darren Seals to another activist who was hanged in a tree not far from the courthouse were turning up dead. Um, and people were giving all kinds of various reasons and theories, and they were just a victim to their own, their own crimes in their own neighborhoods. Um, but my thing is, is that we are in such a technologically advanced age. How dare we (laughs) not think that the same tactics that were used in the sixties and seventies, and that grew more sophisticated then were not being used now. I think that's very, we we don't, we don't welcome the speakers in our house. We don't, you know, we, we got Mm -hmm. all kinds of surveillance that's out in the open. They're not even hiding mm-hmm. the type of, of, of uh, digital surveillance, but you're right. Like how, mm-hmm. how, how, you know, if we underestimate the type of technological reach that our government has, we'd be mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I, 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 I feel like it's, it's a fallacy and very arrogant. And not only that, um, it takes a lot less <laughs> than, than what it did then 
to 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 trick people into things now because of two things technology and capitalism you know what i'm saying the almighty dollar buys a whole lot these days and right. um the fact that everybody does have profiles on everything everywhere and people come and they congregate like with so much ease as opposed to what it used to have to be it's not mm-hmm. hours on a bus anymore it's not hours on a plane um it's it's you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, you know, quicker now, you know, everything is quicker, everything is faster. Um, but yeah, I, I feel wholeheartedly that, um, people need to be cared for because in the end, um, unlike the sixties and seventies where there was a big mama's house that you can rest at after your protest, where there was somebody's back door that you could come in and get a plate of food and then go back out to the protest. You know what I'm saying? There are not those things that there were then. And people love to entertain, well, why why wasn't there so many people at this one and then that one? Because it's a privilege at this point. People have jobs and work and the community does not care for itself like it used to. It can't. It can't. It's busy putting out fires of capitalism every mm-hmm. moment. So if you've got to pay down debt, and you've mm-hmm. got to, you know, just the cost of living in Charleston, Charleston, what, mm-hmm. just top, top the list of number one gentrifying cities in America. Yeah. So, yeah. like, you're right. Go, attending a protest is um, is a privilege. And even the up, the uprising of May 31st, like, I know I was taking care of myself. I didn't, I couldn't do it. I, I tried. I thought about it. And I couldn't do it. And mm-hmm. I... um. I know because not because I was afraid because Lord knows I've been in these been in these streets, but like it's it's just it was a lot, and especially seeing uh, death recorded and put mm-hmm. on television for public consumption. Um, you know the way black bodies are treated in this country. Um, there's something about the spectacle of our lynchings, mm-hmm. of our, you know that that people love to commodify and mm-hmm. um, yeah. But um, I guess to just um, to round this out. Um, what do you want people to know about you or your work or anything? Just what do you want to leave folks with? Um, well, that, that I've put my heart and soul in this quite literally. Um, and it, it, it heartens me. It makes me happy to see the, the response that we're getting, but it also makes me sad at the same time, because if we really, um, had these things five years ago, there's no telling where we would be now. Um, so I'm very sad that this is happening again. Um, I also want to say as, as in relation to what you said about the spectacle of, 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 of black death, I, I, I can't stand the commodification of, of black pain in this moment. And I've had to hold a lot of space for myself to reach out to healing leaders like Kane at Transformation Yoga or going to my own spiritual advisor and seeking out church, just healing things. Because right at this moment, this community needs to be healed. Um, These children, they need to be healed because this is very real pain that we're all experiencing over and over and over again. And I would love to see this community build back up into the community that it can be. Um, but in this moment, I'm going to hold the abolition and, and, and the criminal justice work because I, be, I, I also feel like everybody has their place. We can all do this together. I feel like we can unify and get this work done. However, we've got to step outside of um, like a click kind of attitude and, and, and everybody like I can't attend five different 
um, functions, one for criminal justice, one for, all, you know, all of these things and do four other things. You know what I'm saying? I'm focused on one and that's criminal justice in itself, abolition, um, you know, the taking part of that. But all of the other things like housing, all of these things are required in the dismantling of white supremacy. Absolutely. You're right. And I think that probably you probably just like me um, out here doing everything and then not being any good to, you know, being good to mm. people, but kind of like, yeah, your, your, your attention can get divided. And now mm. you, you found your niche with the, the liberation fund, the bailout funds. And I found mm. my niche with my platform too, um, uh, because I can't be everything to everybody. And I think when it comes, oh, <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to black women when it comes to black women's labor the world feels entitled to our maternal labor and and, mm-hmm. and our energy and our capacity and mm-hmm. um, um i want people who are listening to support you so can you tell people um how they can donate to blf um our facebook page has our um chosen methods of of donation links it has a cash app venmo and a paypal link um and we have a website blackliberationfund.org um we're gonna be updating it with our new work and what's currently going on um but i need everybody to keep in mind that black liberation fund you know we just started june first so we've gained a lot of ground don't get me wrong it's a lot of great work but it's also continuing and we have a good ways to go. Um, so if they would like to donate, that's appreciated. If they have expertise in law, research, um, job connections, any of these kind of things, they can send us an email. Um, all of those things are appreciated if they cannot, you know, donate financially. Um, but, but, you know, financial is good if you cannot do those other things. Yes, I think I appreciate you underscoring how they can support you and how many different ways. Um, and I also appreciate you explaining how much actually this takes out of you. So hopefully folks will be inclined to support you. Um, and I'll continue to lift up your work. I'll continue to amplify. Um, I know you're also speaking, you're speaking on certain panels coming up and I know there are a, n- a number of them. So I'll ask for you, I'll ask for that information uh, via email from you. And then um, I'll include it in this episode show notes so people can perhaps listen to you uh, or just catch up with you because you, you have a lot of wisdom to dispense. And I, I look Thank forward you. to, <laughs> I do. I look forward to really learning. I learn from you every time you open your mouth. So um, I, I appreciate you and you're right. We got to get out that click mentality myself too, but that ain't nothing but white supremacy making us feel that way. So mm-hmm. we, we just get we getting out of it we good we good <laughs> but yeah, yeah, okay. yeah but but thank you so much sis and i um i just wish you well all right thank you <laughs> okay uh-huh.